In the aftermath of the Second World War, Europe, particularly the Axis power countries, was the prime battleground for dominance between the emergent superpowers of the United States and the Soviet Union. Along with East and West Germany, Italy was similarly divided along ideological lines, with pro-American, typically business-oriented interests, pitted against mostly communist and Soviet-sympathizing labor movements. In between were the fascists, who sought to retain or adapt the system for the post-war era that had held power officially for over 20 years prior to the war. Between 1969 and 1980, the Cold War turned hot for civilians and ideologues alike, with estimates putting the death toll over 400 from a series of assassinations and bombings. Amidst it all, the Italian government pursued the policy of tension, which many saw as an attempt to inflame the violence in order to bolster the demand for a security state. In America today, the parallels with grassroots conflict and state agent provocateurs is notable, if not striking. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been Hello, welcome back to the program. Thank you for joining us. I'm Nick. I'm joined today by Adam and Hans, and we are going to be discussing one of my favorite topics, which is political violence. <laughs> and to do that, we actually have with us uh, a young lad by the name of Patrick, and he will be our proverbial Virgil as we descend into the inferno of post-war Italian politics. Yes. Hello, Patrick. Would you like to yep. tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Yes. My name is Patrick, the infamous, the one and only, and uh, reviled uh, by many and loved by few. I am uh, I'm going to also take you on an infer- <laughs> infernian descent into the depths of the years of lead as best I can. This is a subject that's interested me for a while, and I think it will dovetail in some respects with a previous show that we had done on uh, the Red Army faction in Germany. Uh, There are parallels, and it will dovetail also with stuff we have done way back when we discussed uh, collaboration of the American state and oligarchs with the uh, Jewish Sicilian syndicate. Uh, We probably, as I understand, looking over the material that Patrick has brought, probably won't get too deep into that, but uh, those are two things that I think maybe we can plug in the notes if you want to go revisit those uh, episodes of the program. So why don't we jump into it 
what interests let's let our guest give his uh thousand thousand uh what do you say thousand feet up ten thousand whatever the fuck you'll say the the big bird's eye view of what what interests you about the subject and okay what do you think will interest the listeners to- okay what it what interests me about the years of lead is um there is so many parallels with the years of lead and our current predicament you could say in america and and i would say the entire western world because kind of what we're going through in street violence and with uh, radical factions kind of already is playing out in america in a way only it's not as pronounced as it was in italy i would say the people in italy both the left and the right were serious about their politics and they were serious about their political violence. Um, that means that uh, they were committed to what they believed in. And and I, I think as we progress also in America's, um, you know, we, we are going to see much more heightened uh, political violence in the streets from, uh, from both factions. Um, I, I, I can almost kind of guarantee that. Uh, maybe not as serious as the years of lead and maybe not as pronounced as the years of lead, but it will definitely intensify. And many of the kind of um, anti-terrorist scholars uh, who, you know, listen to, you know, our stuff and listen to various different uh, podcasts and and, and uh, they, they listen to everybody, they are sort of like using this as a template on how to deal with uh, dissidents. And also another thing, I think this will answer a lot of questions that we have, whether groups are going to be successful, whether there are such things as uh, lone wolves and some of the other more taboo subjects in our sphere will be discussed um, uh, from the years 11. And then that's a lot of what we can glean from it. So I want to make one uh, point from the outset, uh, because as everyone knows, any good historical investment begins uh, at Wikipedia <laughs> <laughs> and Wikipedia when you when you do like when you look at a war or something Wikipedia I'm sure people are familiar with this it does uh, it it has the same template right yes for a given armed conflict and it has you know the belligerents the casualties the commanders leaders and it, it breaks this down uh, uh, <laughs> And the years of lead entry on Wikipedia, it's treated as a, like, they use the template that they use for for war. Yes. And I just think that it has one of the funniest belligerent, like, of all of the Wikipedia articles I've, I've seen, like, this is one of the funniest ones. Because if you look at it, maybe we can put it if you're watching the video, but I just, if you, you're not watching the video, um, you just just look at it. It's, it's, it's hilarious. Uh, if for no other reason uh, you got all these these groups and they you have some you know very cold war era names for radical <laughs> organizations uh but you have like italian government and then it's a list of various you know armed factions within the within the state itself and they have supported by gladio yes. cia and then you go through the left terrorists and then you go over to the, the far right terrorists and it's like <laughs> You got the organizations, you know, you have New, New Order, National Vanguard, yeah. NAR, and then it's including members of P2 Masonic Lodge, <laughs> MI6, CIA. Yeah, that, that's not a clear picture, by the I, way. I just think it's pretty, 
Yeah, that that's not a clear picture. No, I don't think it is. Because unfortunately, oh, that's what, a good reason why Wikipedia is a nice place to start because we can we can go yeah <laughs> get well, away from that. If, if I may chime in on why that's reality. not a if I may chime in on why that's not a good um, that's not a good overview of sort of the right is that the right really doesn't have any voice in the years of lead. Most of the people that you find that are discussing this or studying the years of lead are typically leftists, and they're leftists with a conspiracy or anarchist. They are uh, with a conspiratorial bent towards fascism. What they want to do is they want to prove that the U.S. State Department, uh, with uh, continuity, supported uh, national socialism and fascism up to the the date today. They want to say the, there's a lot of like leftists, uh, even academics, that will make this argument, and they will be apologists for the Red Brigade. Uh, but not for uh, many of the people like uh, the the New Order or the National Vanguard or the NAR. They will not be a apologist. As a matter of fact, if you read some of the entry on Freda uh, or someone like uh, Stefano de Chie, uh, they will absolutely demonize these people as being the incarnate of absolute evil. They will they will indict these people as being the architects of like modern day uh, fascist regimes. And there's a lot of language, especially there's a book by Stuart Christie. And if people don't know who Stuart Christie is, he is the guy who uh, wrote the biography of, of Stefano de la uh, Chiai. Uh, and he says that basically, he tries to connect Chiai to everything from drug smuggling to organized crime uh, to there being kind of a, a fascist international. They they try to do that and uh, and some so go ahead. What do you think about that? Well, I would add to that. It's a phenomenon you find, I mean, throughout 20th century politics with the emergence of these ideologies. To the extent that fascism is a ideology, um, at the very least, I mean, national socialism is obviously an ideology. But mm-hmm. what you the, the fundamental conceit from uh, you know, system academics and left is just they they can never allow for they can never allow or acknowledge a genuine anti-capitalist sentiment yes. uh, on the right. Yeah, it, it always has to be. It's it's always a cover for something, and yeah. you know, it's they're they're always fronts for some kind of uh, authoritarian capitalism, which is yeah. tends to be the analysis of, of that from the from the leftists. <laughs> which is a bit ironic because uh, most of the New Order, Freda, and even uh, Stefano de, de la Chiai, they actually were anti-capitalist, anti-American, and uh, even you could say uh, were congruent with many of the same beliefs as the Red Army faction. I know that'll probably get me in trouble with a lot of people that are more diehard when it comes to either the left right spectrum but if you just you know if you see these two ideologies uh people like freda they tried to forge an alliance with the maoist with uh many of the red Ar- many of the uh red brigade in italy they tried to form an alliance between the two freda was kind of rejected by the right and the left uh stefano de la chiai um, was more of an ambiguous figure. He's 
sort of, um, uh, you could say, he's if I had to say, he's kind of a right wing Che Guevara, uh, if you if you wanted to actually put that out there. And I, and I'm not trying to Nazbol post. I'm just simply saying that these were sort of the reality in Italy. I don't think this would be the reality in America, due to its tradition of sort of anti communism and the fact that the the Cold War and the, the Soviet was a high sort of point in the 50s. Uh, this will probably never happen in America, but in Italy, this is a unique sort of a political phenomenon that's not seen anywhere else. And you can see this in some of the ideologies of some of the the, the, the new right uh, in the French, like uh, Benoit. You can see this in Thiat, uh, who is a Belgian uh, thinker. You can see this also even in the, the writings of Yaki and some of the people like the National Socialists, like Reamer, uh, preferred the Soviet Union over uh, Western Europe. Uh, because at that point, uh, honestly, the Allied forces – go ahead. Go ahead. Well, the, uh, I would just add to that that people like uh, Theriot and Yaki, I mean, their position was not based – in any kind of uh, ideological sympathy with the given state, in that case, the USSR. Ne neither was, was Freda. Was Freda wasn't either. Politic. Yeah, well, that, so was Freda. Freda was right. pretty much. I actually read politics. recently. I read the one available translation I could find of his work or manifesto, "Disintegration of the System." Yes. And I found it very interesting. I mean, it's, however, the thing about this, and I, I think this is where we can jump into the historical timeline, okay. is. What you have here are a lot of niche political expressions of radicalism that are very much contingent upon the place and the time. So the place and the time that we're dealing with here is post-war Italy yeah. in the context of the Cold War. So why don't we why don't we start there and try to give an understanding of the political and historical context in which this violence emerged? Well, this is kind of a, a murky part of history in Italy itself, in that uh, the sources that you find on most of post-war Italy, uh, typically they try to make it seem as if, like the CIA, which was the OSS at the time, not the CIA, that was not formed until I believe after 1945. Uh, they try to, and the the earliest like architects is someone like. Uh, James Angleton. They try to make it seem like James Angleton utilized these pre-existing fascist networks, uh, which existed in Italy, uh, to construct this intelligence apparatus, um, and to and to devise kind of a uh, a support for the anti-communist uh, sort of regime. And um, I don't know how accurate that is, but I will say that um, that at the time. Communism was on the rise in Italy. That is, that is a fact. It was actually on the rise in Italy. And uh, there was, a, I guess, if you were an American, there was a kind of communist threat on the horizon. And I suppose that uh, you might have used uh, sort of pre-existing sort of right-wing uh, fascist sort of, uh, you could say, guard. Uh, that already existed. So we're we're talking about a different situation than in like the denazification of, of like Germany. The de the denazification of Germany was brutal, and it was a very arduous 
sort of task in which uh, the um, you know uh, Dulles and the the American intelligence and the Allied forces just totally uh, either exiled or used who they could for their benefit, uh, like the the Galen networks. Well, this didn't exist in Italy. In Italy, there were still people that were sympathetic to the to the fascist and. Uh, we can we can also see this this causes a type of conflict later uh, where the more radical uh, fascist um, factions start uh, forming, and even in many cases, um, allegedly, they were used to uh, stop the election. Some I believe sometime in the 1948, they were used to um, intervene in the election to keep the communists from winning. So that's sort of the dynamic we're talking about with the Cold War. Uh, in Italy, do you, do you have anything to say about that? Yeah, the that was when the uh, American intelligence network yeah. uh, basically brought Lucky Luciano back yes. to Italy. Yes, he had I'm been collaborating with them domestically, but this was when uh, and it's you'll see it called different things. Uh, they call it nowadays. You'll see Project Underworld or Operation Underworld. I'm not sure that we've I, I don't know if that's exactly accurate. I also don't think it matters very much what the specific name was. But when like people like Peter Dale Scott were writing about this long time ago, it was uh, it was just Operation X. Was what he okay. referred to it as. But uh, basically, it, it is interesting here that there's they're stuck between I mean, the cold. That's the thing about the end of the war. When the when the Cold War kicks off, they immediately have shift gears and so they're willing to work with people who previously were there yeah. this is what you saw in germany which, which doesn't make any sense they have to walk a fine line between making use of what assets are available you know because you can't that's the thing it's like if you're going to start if you're gearing up for world war three and you're your launching point for this so these european states that you have just decimated you have to walk a fine line between making use of available assets, but also making sure that they can't rise up against you. Yeah. Uh, as, and that was what kind of big brain thinkers uh, in Europe were advocating was, yeah. you know, if anything, even a, an alliance with the USSR in order to drive out the American occupation forces. Yeah, that's why I think and this people is what, misunderstand. This is what the American forces were afraid of. Yeah, I think that's what people misunderstand when they're looking at contextually, when they're looking at like Yaki or um, many of the other sort of, um, uh, you could say, third positionist type of thinkers. They're thinking, oh, yeah, they're they're com they're, they're thinking them in a reductionist faction, uh, fashion. They're not seeing the full like picture of geopolitically when they look at these um, – these particular thinkers, they're not seeing that um, America and its influence upon like Europe was a decaying agent. It was an agent that already um, that would decay further a, a already dead sort of countries uh, such as Germany and such as other parts of Europe. It was a decaying agent that set in uh, kind of as gang green and uh, the rot we can definitely see from like the, uh, you know, uh, in the modern world presently. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and defend the USSR and say that it was any better or that uh, Stalin was a, 
a uh, you know, it was a formidable, you know, like kind of. Uh, he, I, I'm not going to say like he was the a person that you'd want to confide in for uh, nationalism, like many people probably would. I will only say that for many people, like you mentioned, uh, he it was real polit politique, and it was a, a way to pivot, uh, sort of the American influence in uh, in Europe at the time. Now, getting back into the years of lead, um, and then you know going going into like the precursor to the years of lead, uh, it's believed that um, uh, Angleton may have. Go ahead. Do you have something to say? Yeah, well, I just wanted because this is this is relevant. This is yeah. where you get the uh, the strategy of tension. Yeah. And Gladio itself maybe is a subject for a whole <laughs> other episode. Uh, but the strategy of tension, I think, is is poorly understood, and yeah. it can be attributed in different ways. Uh, but to the point about like USSR versus USA, it's you're. You have to understand, like if you're in the if you're caught between these powers, yeah, and your goal is the liberation of your own people, yeah, then it doesn't help you to throw your lot one hundred percent in with point. It's the, yeah. these two powers are 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 pitted against each other, yeah. and you're situated in the middle. You're not doing yourself any favors to become, you know, the future fucking nuclear wasteland in between. Yeah. Um, now, when you say strategy attention, I agree with you that it's like poorly understood and that uh, many, unfortunately, people on either spectrums kind of don't understand that it's sort of a uh, political seesaw. It's not a uh, it's not something that's finite. It's not something that is definite. It is something that kind of fluctuates uh, depending on like. Uh, you know, like I said, what geopolitical access you're talking about, like the, what what. It depends, like, really, ultimately, like you said, what the goal, ultimate goal is of either on the left or right spectrum. And yes, in many cases, I think, um, you know, Italy was kind of unique in that um, going back to kind of a prior to the years of lead, they had sort of a tradition of extremism. Um, they had a tradition of uh, when they, uh, even even the communists, when they adopted the left or a right spectrum, they were much more extreme. And even people like Lenin commented about the Italian uh, Marxist kind of Leninist being more extreme than the rest of uh, the Soviet. And they also had a tradition of anarchism. And the anarchism they embraced was more of a Bakunian, uh, Perdone type of anarchism, uh, which in itself, many people speculate that's more of what the um, left-wingers, and you could say like leftists, like the Red Brigade, uh, chose uh, as their, uh, their, their sort of ideology, as opposed to just uh, straight remember, up Marxist, Marxist-Leninist. He did Bakunin moment. I think it was at like the Second International, where he yeah. stood up and denounced all of these Marxist revolutionaries yes. as tools of the Jewish bankers. Yeah. And and that was sort of the spirit in in uh, in Italy. And at the time, Italy also had its own unique sort of uh, egoist, uh, Sternian type of anarchism, which um, they definitely questioned the the um, question of autonomy and the state in itself. 
which was a constant. Uh, most people probably never heard of this particular anarchist, but his name is Renzo Novatore. He was uh, kind of an interesting case. Uh, he's another one of these people that's sort of strictly birthed out of the Italian milieu that I don't think you could find anywhere else in uh, Europe at the time because of like the extremism that uh, many of the Italians embraced. And even people who sort of take a look uh, into the years of lead, they all concede that the, even the Red Army Brigade, even though they were kind of on a Marxist-Leninist sort of uh, tilt, it was more of a anarchist flavor, kind of like the uh, Bader Meinhof. They were sort of a uh, they were sort of, they're sort of like congruent with one another in that they sort of have more of a nihilist sort of view as opposed to straight straight Marxist-Leninist revolutionary view. But I, I think I've yeah, gotten off on a, so I think in the context on a tangent. Of no, it's it's fine. In the context of Italy, we have to keep in mind that Italy as a national, the idea of Italy as a national state was relatively new at the time. Yeah. So I'm, I'm interested. I always kind of wondered what it was about Italians that led to these these kind of uh, uh, such to have these kind of radical politics in a way that's actually cohesive and having a large amount of participation. I don't know if it has to do with the Italian family structures, Italian regions. I'm not sure. I don't know. Uh, I've never been to Italy. Uh, I've, I've known Italians, though. But I do know that <laughs> a lot of the violence that took place took place in the north. Yes. Do you have Most any guesses as to... The industrialist north. Yeah, it was so. mainly the industrialist north. That was mainly mainly around Turin, uh, Padua, Milan, were mainly the main centers of uh, violence. I, I would assume it and, was centered around the control of the unions. Yes, it was. It was centered around the unions. The, uh, and and quite unlike sort of the you know leftists in America. It's the the ones that the people in like uh, the the north in like the industrialist areas were more uh, working class, uh, so there was more of an agreement between the you could say academic class, the the working class, and uh, sort of the everyday everyday leftists that uh, sort of had this uh, sort of handshake with one another uh, that they would go against uh, the industrialists and go against uh, the state. Uh, there was also antagonism by the Christian Democrats. The Christian Democrats uh, pretty much conceded with everything that the um, Americans, and they felt this was a compromise. And that's what I mean when I went of back. Of course. <laughs> there might be a little element of that as well. I've never looked into that particular element in the years of lead. I didn't find a whole lot of it uh, except with Freda. There seems to be like some Zionist intervention with Freda saying that, uh, you know, you can't publish this because this is, uh, you know, quote unquote anti-Semitic. This is, you know, this is like uh, uh, against uh, – which is weird because the fascist, the, the mainstream fascist, the MSI, um, the Italian social, socialist order, Italian socialist movement, uh, I think they're called or something like that. They actually supported the Zionist. They supported the Zionist state of Israel. 
saying that they are a sort of buffer against Moscow. Uh, because like at the time, they were scared about Moscow uh, and the Soviet Union gaining any kind of influence in a major economic zone, uh, which is mainly why America was kind of uh, nervous about communism taking over uh, Italy at the time. They were they were nervous about like a major. Yeah, that was a huge, huge dynamic in the Cold War, and you see that a lot with respect to South Africa and yeah. Rhodesia's relationship to the Zionist entity as well. Yeah. They they were very uh, sympathetic to the to Zionists for whatever reason I don't know. Um, it mean it seems like it would be antithetical to the um, mindset of the the MSI. Um, but then again, I think there wasn't really. Uh, this is kind of a controversial thing to say. I don't think there really was a kind of ethnic component uh, strictly with fascism as opposed to national socialism. I think it had more of a. Oh, it's not controversial at all. Fascism I think that's was correct. Not, fascist yeah. Italy was not anti-Semitic. Yeah, I mean, in the march on Rome, there were like I think something like two hundred or hundred to two hundred Jews present. Yes. And I, I think uh, it's not to say it was philo-Semitic either. No, but it, it was. It was not any. I mean, I, people are I, they get told lies, colleges. I there's no. I mean, shit, these days you could find, I mean, everything is anti-Semitic, but people just <laughs> assume this because, yeah. you know, because of course they do. Well, I, I think Mussolini had to concede to more restrictions on Jews because of his alliance with Germany and how much he became to became dependent upon Germany near the end of the war. Uh, but initially, uh, that was completely the case where there was there was really not much anti-Semitism and in uh, fascism in Italy. Yeah. Um, going back to what I was saying about the anarchist and the anarchist like kind of bent that some of the um, you know Red Brigade had, and it seems like I'm just talking about the Red Brigade. I'll get into the the fascists later. I'll discuss them later. But I think the the Red Brigade actually kind of fascinates me a lot more than kind of the the fascists itself, because um, you would think that they were totally aligned with Moscow, like they were totally aligned with the the USSR. Uh, they weren't. They they kind of had their own uh, sort of momentum. And and what interests me about the Red Brigade is they're completely different than most of the the um, antifad, most of the uh, leftists of the modern era. Because I think because of their working class background, they tended to reject a lot of the social, uh, you know, progressivism that you find in uh, leftist, you know, leftist spheres in America. So strictly, they were sort of economic, economical as opposed to like you know progressive, like many of the uh, many of the leftists, and they didn't mind uh, using. I mean, that of course they're they're sort of similar in the way that they didn't mind using violence against. You know, against uh, fascist entities, but uh, they were they they basically didn't really like progressivism. And as a matter of fact, in um, memoirs of an Italian terrorist by a uh, um, Giorgio, he mentions uh, his disgust sort of for uh, first I think uh, you know second wave feminism. He sort of mentions his disgust for feminism. Uh, his <laughs> his sort of mockingly he kind of. Uh, makes fun of uh, academic progressives. And what's even funny 
is he even goes further to say that the uh, he doesn't like the Red Brigade because the Red Brigade is only sort of focused on um, sort of uh, uninstalling the uh, democratic, uh, you know, socialists out of uh, the Christian Democrats out of like power. He he is um, he is more interested in sort of leading a rebellion on the street as opposed to uh, through e even what uh, the Red Brigade does. And and let me at this point make the distinction between the Red Brigade and the other leftist factions that existed. Uh, there was the Ultatome, uh, Atome, uh, or Operenda. Operenda. I, I apologize for the. Um, you know, for for the uh, lack of, you know, <laughs> proper pronunciation of Italian, but uh, the Autotome were sort of more of an extremist um, the faction of the Red Brigade, if you can believe that. Uh, they they didn't mind using uh, cr even criminality to bring down the system. They they didn't mind doing heist, doing robberies, uh, destroying uh, destroying storefronts, and uh, just wrecking havoc uh, on. Uh, the Italian uh, sort of, uh, you know, the, the Italian society. They didn't mind also like integrating uh, criminals into their uh, organ, you know, organization. Maybe that was a downfall on their on their behalf, but uh, that was the difference. They also embraced something called spontaneity, which is a type of uh, extreme interpretation of like a Marxist-Leninist revolution. That's saying, and more of a Maoist sort of. Uh, revolutionary political theory, which said that you had to embrace sort of the moment and sort of uh, and sort of like uh, you couldn't even depend on like like it, it integrated a lot of, um, like I said, spontaneity, as I said, that was a sort of like uh, that was the, the difference between the two opposing sort of leftist uh, extremist groups. Uh, I'm curious if you're aware of any analog from the Italian militant left. To somebody like uh, Horace Mann, like these people still around today, and have any comments on the absolute state of neoliberalism in the 21st century? I'm I'm actually not, um, but Horace Maller is a is an interesting case, in that I think that um, he deviated more to the right as he sort of saw the dysfunction in the system, and that's why I say that's why it kind of supports my argument that. Um, it was more of a Nichevian sort of anarchism as opposed to, uh, you know, just straight up Marxist-Leninist um, revolutionary theory because they didn't really integrate a lot of third worldism into um, Italian uh, rhetoric, Italian like uh, socialist uh, rhetoric. Most of it is comprised mainly of like uh, discussing working class issues as opposed to like third worldism, which is uh, they did take inspiration from. The Cuban and the South American uh, militants. Uh, a matter of fact, that's probably where they embraced. They got a lot of their, um, uh, their a lot of their tactics of kidnapping, uh, you know, uh, political officials. And so did Freda, though, for that matter. Yes, Freda as well. Freda integrated a lot of uh, rhetoric from like the Cuban Revolution and from uh, other various different leftist uh, dissidents across South America. But I don't know of so, any particular analog let's talk to about, uh, Hertz Maller. Let's talk about the lead up to this. What okay. what is uh, what is commonly understood as 
the kickoff to the, the years. The of kickoff lead. pretty much. What the, was the, the state kickoff, of Italy at the time? Okay, the kickoff was pretty much um, has to do with what they know as hot autumn and hot summer. This was a kind of dispute between the um, Red Brigade, uh, which at the time was not called the Red Brigade. It was called the Reggio. Uh, I don't know the exact name, but it was called the Re Reggio. Um, that was the name of their, their group. And this occurred when uh, sort of leftists started occupying the factories and started like burning down and looting and and uh, pretty much hitting, you know, fascists with wrenches in the street. Uh, and also with um, the, the state, of course, came down very hard upon the, the leftists. And uh, this resulted in the death of an Italian police officer. This is the first casualty of the years of lead. And this is pretty much what kicked it off. Although most people will tell you the thing that kicked off the years of lead was the Pazazio. Uh, bombing, the Piazza bombing that was, uh, many people think was orchestrated maybe by the neo-fascists, but uh, we really don't know. But that was the main point that, that kind of kicked off the years of lead was the um, sort of the suppression of like the, the leftist groups in, in the northern industrial towns of uh, Turin and uh, Padua and, uh, and Milan. That was sort of what kicked off the entire uh, political violence. For, as what far do as you I know about the specific labor disputes that were taking place there? Uh, what the was being made there? Labor what, was, what were the conditions? Well, from, from what I understand is that uh, the Italian economy at the time was kind of on a downturn. And uh, sort of like some of the, uh, some of the uh, factories like the Fiat, the Fiat and, and the, the other uh, uh, Siemens uh, were sort of clamping down on the working force and as in times of like a recession i think a lot of people were getting laid off and a lot of people were uh, sort of distressed at the time and there probably was a lot of tension between uh the gradual industrialization of like italy uh, because they were going from sort of a uh, even during world war ii they were largely an agricultural type of uh society still and they were going kind of industrializing, and there was kind of a spurt of industrialization, but it was not being felt completely in the north. It was uh, it, there was sort of the progress was sort of stagnant in the north, and that was uh, that's what I think uh, kind of the disputes that that happened. So, why then was violence being targeted against the fascists? What was the were the fascists allied with the industrialists? Yes, they felt what, that. What was they the felt that. Yes. specifically. The no, it was. Hmm. It, they felt okay. What they felt is it true though? Is it true? No, it is not true. That's why I say like there's, there was a misinterpretation on both sides during the years that led. That's largely what led to a lot of the uh, partisan violence between the fascists and the and the and the um, the leftists. I think that's that's largely what left. It wasn't true. Now, you know, maybe on outside looking in, it may have appeared to be true. And uh, I'm not really sure. I don't have access to a lot of the Italian resources. So I'm not really sure their complete uh, view because like what the sources I have, you know, that was available to me 
in English. They don't really give a good indication of it's all interpreted through American scholars. And American scholars either take the conspiratorial view or they either take the view that the, the kind of anti-fascist view about uh, interpretations of history in, yep. in Italy in the years led, the, the lead up to it. This may, this may sound like kind of a goofy question, but I'm, I, I'm, it's very, I'm very serious. <laughs> okay. Uh, Italians have a very large fan. They're very clannish. Yeah. I could easily see a situation where, you know, Alfonso's cousin gets a yeah. wrench in the face because he's a you know middle manager at the Fiat plant. Yeah. And it so happens that, you know, his brother's wife's cousin is like the leader of some fascist party. And yes, a series of reprisals string ideologies taking place when really you're just looking at a very traditional Italian clan feud. Yes, and and that was highlighted in the book Memoirs of an Italian uh, uh, Terrorist, where it uh, discussed that uh, the guy had to be careful about uh, what uh, trattoria um, he had to attend to, meaning these these are restaurants. These are kind of like cafes and restaurants that people went to eat, and um, they had to be careful to uh, choose these things strategically because uh, if they chose the wrong one, they could be subject to any type of uh, partisan violence, either from their side, because that, that's the thing about it. Infighting was uh, very common um, in amongst the leftists. The leftists didn't necessarily love one another, um, and they didn't necessarily work together. Um, there were plenty of them that saw each other as sellouts and, and compromised by the system, including many people in the Red Brigade. And the Red Brigade was very paranoid about infiltrators, uh, informants, and either other other fascists that may have infiltrated their organization. So yeah, I do think the dynamic of the family structure, uh, the the close kin-based family structure, had a lot to do with uh, a lot of the violence uh, you probably saw in in the street. And and like I said, unlike the violence today. The the Italians carried a large wrench, and it's not the conventional pipe wrench you see, like uh, you know, in like uh, in America. It's a large kind of turbine wrench uh, called the Shivai in Inglesi. Inglesi, I think, is that why wrenches are those just like things that people were using at the Fiat factory? Yes, that was exactly. As a matter of fact, a lot of the symbolism in um, sort of the uh, some of the leftist groups. Uh, had sort of a wrench and a sickle. That was sort of their uh, their their symbolism they used. So yes, it, a lot of it had to do with the strong sort of working class uh, background. And and let me also add that uh, this particular region for which the Red Brigade, it's around modern day Tuscany. It was known to be an area, a hotbed of leftist activity. It was known to be a, a leftist activity. It was always, it was actually a holdout, sort of in the same way that uh, you know in Spain, uh, there are holdouts in terms of like leftist, anarchist holdouts. Well, this particular region from which the Red Brigade uh, was in was uh, specifically uh, had a lot of resistance members, and a lot of the guy, the guy who actually founded the uh, Red Brigade, actually came from that pedigree. That's actually the pedigree that he came up. 
So who were the targets of the bombings and how, how many were there? I read that there were many, but uh, what what were the notable ones and was there a pattern? Well, the, the notable, okay, the notable ones was the, um, okay, you mentioned the, the bombings. And, you know, it's rather vague about like the leftist bombings. I'm pretty sure the leftists probably also uh, engaged in bombings, but most of the bombings they, they typically attribute to uh, most of the years of lead, typically they say it's the, the neo-fascist from the sources I've read. Um, they say it's typically the neo-fascist. But um, from what I understand, the bombings increased in 1969. Uh, that was like the the setting place of the Piazza, uh, Piazza del Fontano. And this was an agricultural bank. And uh, this is also the, the uh, Banca Nazionale. Uh, del Lavario, and that was in Rome, and the Banca Commerciale. And uh, these were bombed on December 19th, 1969. The other one, the other bombing uh, that is major was the Bologna bombing, and they attribute that to uh, Stefano della Ciale. That's, that's the person they attribute it to. The Piazza bombing has a bit of controversy to it and uh, they, they sort of rounded up 80 suspects uh, they rounded up a guy named Giuseppe Pinelli um, Pinelli sorry Pinelli and this guy was an anarchist and they say that um, you know this this guy was was actually targeted uh, by the police by a guy named uh, Luigi Calabrese and they blamed him for um, uh, the death of Giuseppe uh, Pinelli, and and he was they say he was thrown from like basically a multi-storied building, and this caused quite a bit of controversy, uh, so much so that later on the Red Brigade actually killed, or the uh, Loda Continua, that is the Eternal Struggle, actually killed uh, Luigi Calabresi, uh, I believe in 1970, uh, 72 is when they killed him. Uh, but those were the two major bombings. The Red Brigade mainly were known for kidnapping, not so much bombings, as far as I understand. Does that answer so, your question? Well, that? what was the what was the goal? Uh, so they bombed a bank and then they kidnapped some people. So were these well, the, uh, the um, Piazza yeah. Fontana bombing? Uh, they don't know for sure who did it, but they believe that. Um, uh, the sort of neo-fascist uh, did it, and primarily that was part of the strategy of uh, strategy attention. That was part of the strategy attention. So, uh, is it really just kind of a false flag then, and there was no ultimate yes. purpose to it? It was really just well, to well, pin the blame on the actual target. Yes. Okay. Okay. The blame was uh, mainly it was uh, they believe the architect of that, and uh, this is where I'm saying the controversy sort of comes from like was it was it sort of the state actors or was it you know people like uh, Stefano Dicieli or or um or Freda they don't know for sure like nobody has ever concluded that that's for sure well, what about foreign actors yes foreign actors as well they and they say US like the US the intelligence agency were primarily the ones to do uh false flags i have a different take on these bombings I think perhaps Stefano de, de Chiali and, and maybe Freda did it, but I think they did it 
um, knowing that um, the the sort of they they didn't really have much of a choice to navigate politically uh, to get their wishes. I think they they sort of were faced and 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 pinned in by the uh, both the the state and also by uh, many of the uh, actors in Italy uh, because they were dis they were sort of disenchanted by the MSI choosing to to do the parliamentary uh, par parliamentary route uh, as opposed to the sort of uh, what they seen as the uh, you know the the uh, fascist way which was more of a uh, a throwback to heroism. So I, I think they, they probably did it. They, they probably did the Piazza bombing and probably the Bologna bombing. But uh, it's not definite either way to say who did most of these bombings. There's no, there's no uh, really closure to the subject. I will say this, okay. As far as Freda goes, they, um, they actually... Uh, they actually questioned Freda about where he got the detonators. He, they questioned him where he got the detonators, and they, they quoted the figure of 51 detonators. And uh, Freda said, I, I didn't buy 51 detonators. I bought uh, like 100 and so, and I bought it from an Algerian sort of uh, agent. That's what he said. And in court, they could not uh, verify any of like um, – uh, you know, Freda's claims. And the same thing with the handbag. They did the investigation on the handbag, uh, which enclosed the uh, the bombs, and they couldn't uh, they couldn't pinpoint Freda as being the uh, person who purchased this from a uh, you know fr from allegedly from like a German. Uh, they 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 trace back the the bag to sort of a um, I believe a German merchant had sold him the bag. And they could not pinpoint exactly to um, that 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 was the same exact bag. So they acquitted uh, Freda. Of course, they didn't let him go. They kept him in jail for 15 years because um, at the same time, he had violated pretty much trying to resurrect fascism in Italy. That was their argument against uh, against Freda. And I believe also his uh, his co-conspirators also like were jailed. Uh, but many people think the person behind Freda and the strategy attention was a guy named Stefano De La Ciale. And that's uh, that's primarily about the Piazza bombing. And uh, it's in its involvement. With, so, you, uh, so you mentioned it, it started in 1969. Uh, and my yeah. understanding was this went through the 70s. Um, yes. Yes, there was many like other minor events there was one with a train station uh getting bombed um let me let me i don't know the exact name of it but there was a train station that got bombed and that uh sort of escalated to 1980 okay which which i believe was the last uh major bombing event in uh in italy because uh, otherwise it just the the other major event is the um aldo the aldo, aldo kidnapping Aldo Moro kidnapping in 1978. Well, I'm curious your accounting of the number of killed because you know one again they say could 80. go. They go say to... like they say okay. like 80. And okay, they that's say that's, like, that's uh, not, no, not no, a sorry, huge sorry, number. Sorry, sorry. Uh, 19 were killed. I mean, uh, 19 19 were mortally wounded and 80 were killed. 
and this is throughout the entire ten plus years, or this no, is no, one no, of no, the particular no, no, no. incidents. Okay. No, 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 no. No, they they claim over four hundred. Okay. And uh, like uh, four hundred and twenty people were killed. So what I was getting at was how many of these things are sort of like COVID numbers? How many of them are legitimately connected? Uh, we we really don't know. Yeah, really, it, this seems like kind of a gigantic mess, and so obviously, yeah, we we don't know Italy's because it's a complicated and violent place. And how yeah. fair is that number? Is really my my question. No, I I don't think it's very fair because uh, scholars I think are reluctant to deal with the years of lead because it parallels modern day America so much. And if they did, they'd have to concede that the multicultural state of America and democracy in itself is kind of a failure. And I think they don't like that. They don't like the fact that uh, it also doesn't bode well for uh, America, because honestly, the way America sort of is going uh, with the, uh, you know, the, the the partisan violence, it appears that you know we could be headed in that same direction. So scholars don't they 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 broach this tub this, this subject very lightly. They don't want to address any of the concise facts with. Uh, you know, the years of lead and also the collusion from the state and the, the sort of phantom networks that maybe were established in Europe at the time. Uh, there's a whole lot of things to answer to from the uh, American State Department than, uh, than, than many would acknowledge. So from what I understand and from what I've read uh, is a lot of these anti-terrorist scholars and a lot of these people at the SPLC and a lot of these other like uh, – uh, sort of surveillance groups, they are sort of drawing parallels to the years of lead and, and modern day America. And from what it seems is that they don't want to disclose or be completely transparent about the violence on either side. Um, and there's sort of a bias also, like I mentioned previously, for a lot of leftist academics to uh, champion the, the Red Brigade as opposed to the uh, the neo-fascist. And and th there's just a lot of questions there about uh, either side. And uh, and if it is true that there were like state actors amongst either side, it kind of seems that uh, the puppeteer here is the puppeteer is is kind of maybe the central intelligence and and also maybe the um in Italian intelligence. And they're really, but but I think that's kind of a reductionist view in in looking at either side. I think both sides were legitimate and organic. Like I even I think Freda was organic. I think Stefano De Cialli was organic. And I think what you have here is just a kind of unique uh, flavor of Italian uh, political violence, as opposed to just being state just state actors. Does that clarify things, or is it still sort of murky? No, no, I think it's an honest answer. I mean, it's difficult to discern all this stuff. Um, yeah. But I, I appreciate your um, interpretations of the official account. I typically uh, take a lot I'm of this stuff with a grain of salt anyway, but you know, yeah. if, if you've put your time and attention to it, I, I give you some credence there. Yeah, I'm sort of skeptical about the official numbers of like uh, – the violence in in like uh, the years led myself, and um, I, I don't know how they reconcile all those like uh, sort of figures. 
I think this is also, unfortunately, a kind of uh, moralist dilemma for a lot of dissidents themselves because um, – and, and I'm not fed posting here. I'm just simply saying that when you kind of get into dissident politics and it becomes sort of beyond the surface level to where you're just meeting up or you're just sort of engaging um, you know, in, in a less serious, ma serious manner, uh, you have to make a decision about um, – you know how you're going to maneuver, and I think that's the that's the most pressing lesson from the years of lead kind of can convey to us is that you see both sides, uh, they were extreme and they were serious about the the their politics. They were serious about their motivations and their goals, um, but they sort of got wrapped up in um, a, a kind of string of terrorism and also a string of like uh, uh, kind of a an un, uh, kind of an unstable infrastructure in Italy itself kind of lended to and I would say exacerbated yeah. many of the situations what do you guys think I, I from the American perspective I, I, I will say I think that there's a tendency amongst Americans to attribute non-state actors as just being puppets for state yeah. actors and i think it has to do with the fact that american politics is so unserious and, yeah and if you if you do a thought experiment you have to recognize i mean america was not bombed to shit there was no holocaust of two million americans like <laughs> there was in germany for example uh, in europe in the post-war era these these are places that saw the real life transformation of you know everything around you from in war and the rise and fall of the entire state you know orders are redrawn so in europe the the politics had a lot more it it, it came home a lot more and to understand why people would be participating in something uh, it seems to us, we, you know, you roll your eyes like, oh, well, no, there's no, it, obviously Italy did not become a, you know, neo-communist or neo-fascist state. It, it, it's what we have now. And no. It's, it's still a, a NATO vassal. But, yes. but back, back then there was, there, there was a very real possibility of victory for yeah. any given On either side, ideological yes. uh, position. Yes. Yeah. And that's, I think that's important to understand and put into context. Uh, I don't want to go too far into American parallels now because I'd like to uh, close today's program with a discussion of that. So to move us back onto track, you made a lot of uh, yeah. We're we we're talking about the Piazza Fontana, the Red Brigade. Yeah. So well, what I would like to do is uh, um, so I'd like to continue on the radical left a little bit. Then okay. I want to move over to the state. And then I want to move over to the right. So let's okay. let's let me put it to you this way: uh, outside of the Red Brigades, are there any particular factions or organizations you'd like to highlight on the radical militant left before we? Yeah, there's further? there's two. There's uh, the Potire Operari and the Loda uh, Continua. They they pretty much were backup uh, to the Red Brigade and. Um, they had varying degrees of like uh, how much interaction they should have uh, in terms of militancy. 
Um, and in many ways, uh, I think the Loda Continua uh, was was much more militant than uh, the Red Brigade. And the same thing goes with the sort of the autonomy um, operari. Operari. It was, um, uh, by the way, that means workers' autonomy. In in case if people don't know that that in itself, uh, like I mentioned previously, they they favored a interpretation to where uh, they directly went against uh, sort of the communist as opposed to the the uh, Christian socialist, like as the um, the Red Brigade did, and then they were much more violent uh, in their action and much more criminal. So they in integrated a lot of criminals in there. And their and their organization, that was sort of mainly the differences between the various different leftist factions, and it all like it it all sort of it, it all encircles kind of the historical compromise that uh, that they feel the um, Christian uh, Democrats sort of conceded to. So amongst the leftist factions was a uh, relationship to the USSR a factor uh, in the factionalism or was or not? What was not what was, really what was okay, the not, role of not really not not really from what I've I've gathered. Um, uh, there was much more kind of allegiance to Italy itself and also to uh, Czechoslovakia as opposed to uh, the USSR. It didn't really completely fall under the USSR orbit, although I'm sure they probably uh, funded a lot of um, actors uh, from all various sides. Uh, you know, clearly they had some influence, but uh, they actually complained about how the leftists in Italy kind of are not, uh, are not uh, really supporting the USSR. Uh, the, there was interact, a lot of people believe there could be, there could have been potentially um, more, much more like involvement of like the PLO um, as opposed to the USSR, the the Palestinian uh, liberation. Well, regarding uh, uh, Czechos, uh, excuse me, Yugoslavia, um, is that what you meant or? or um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Yugoslavia borders uh, Italy, uh, at least it did at the time, and now it's uh, Slovenia on the... Uh, northeastern yeah. part bordering um <clears throat> italy but when you mentioned the the type of you know unionization and, and worker uh, attitudes uh it reminded me a lot of uh, tito's uh, worker councils uh, as opposed to the more much more centrally planned economy yes, of the soviet there union was, there was a lot of sympathy with tito amongst the uh uh, amongst the left in Italy. Yeah, and there were a lot of, uh, it's interesting, including the USSR, but there were a lot of uh, forays by the Italian uh, automakers, uh, in particular Fiat, obviously, uh, to make, um, I, it's so make funny. cars I in the USSR and, and, <laughs> and in Yugoslavia as well. Go ahead, Jen. Yeah, go ahead, Nick. It's kind of strange, but interesting. No, no, you go ahead. I want. I wanted to mention. I just before we moved on, I wanted to mention the relationship between Fiat and the USSR in the context <laughs> of this. I think that's yeah. Nice. I think the Lada and the Yugo may have been uh, based. Yeah, the Lada the... and the Fiat were the two yeah. licensed, and they because it was officially licensed. It wasn't just like Chinese style, like mm -hmm. 
you know, nah, nah, this is our own. Like it was, <laughs> it was a officially licensed. I forget what the model in Russia was, but it was like the car in Russia. Um, yeah, it was a Fiat. I think it was like one twenty four. I could be wrong. Yeah, they're they're very similar looking. <laughs> Details are not so important, but I yeah yeah exactly. Just I think that's interesting. This is going on in northern Italy. This is where yeah production is taking place and yeah money is changing hands in, in that context with the USSR. So I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there because that isn't that would be an avenue uh, for funds. I don't know how that would shake out if it would shook out, but it's just an interesting coincidence. Yeah. And uh, just just um, talking a well, little bit about uh, yeah, the, please go on. Th- just talking a little bit about the Red Brigade. Let me briefly go on a little bit about um, who founded them. One of them is named uh, Renato, um, I believe, uh, Curie. Um, you know, pr- pr- forgive me if I'm butchering these names. <laughs> and and his, of course, his wife. Uh, no, not related to Madame. <laughs> Well, it's Albert. Okay, Alberto Franz Shinini. He was the person uh, who uh, was the main kind of uh, organizer in the main. Uh, and Ronaldo uh, Carrico and uh, Margareti uh, Cagu. These were the, the people who uh, sort of organized Red Brigade. And it all came from a place called Trento, uh, which was primarily kind of a university based in the north. And. and um, actually had a sort of a metropolitan. They actually had a metropolitan uh, uh, something called the social struggle uh, for the uh, metropolitan of our metro- metropolis. That was like the the main uh, sort of uh, impetus for most of the Red Brigade. That's where most of the center of activity was for them. And what's important about this is that they were arrested in 1974. Uh, by, uh, by I believe, uh, Chiazzi. Chiazzi was uh, the main uh, sort of, uh, you could say, military uh, chief in Italy. And he actually arrested them in 1974. Kagul, uh, his wife, uh, suffered a, a unfortunate fate of like getting killed by, uh, I believe, the, uh, you know, the, the Carbonari, the police. Um, and what led to this was actually snitches within the organization. Uh, there was a, a person by the name of uh, Franchetta, that uh, Mario Franchetta, that uh, many people believe was planted there by the state and the Italian state and Dicesia. Uh, uh, he actually uh, pl- planted them in there, and they they ran an entire elaborate. Uh, sort of propaganda about this guy called him brother machine gun um, saying that uh, saying that this guy was aligned with South American uh, rebels and uh, this like they invented the entire pedigree uh, on this particular person and many people believe that this guy was uh, you know he was the infiltrator of the Red Brigade and kind of brought them down after 1974 um, it sort of becomes doubtful that a lot of the uh, Red Brigade uh, was um, consistent to their previous uh, ideology. They started to target uh, – this is around the time when they started to target more like political and highly political um, 
targets as opposed to just factory factory workers and sort of mid-level uh, fiat managers. Uh, they started targeting, you know, people like Aldo Moro and um, others like uh, Aldo uh, Rossi uh, later times. This is because of a, a guy named Mario Moretti was the person who took over the ranks uh, from both of the initial uh, Red Brigade. And uh, this guy, you could say this guy kind of ran the Red Brigade into the ground. Uh, he, he would uh, he was totally reckless compared to uh, previously. And many people many people don't believe he's a uh, he was a, a state actor. Uh, they just believe he kind of created the atmosphere from which allowed for a lot of infiltration into uh, the Red Brigade. And there actually was another guy um, named Simone, uh, Simone, and uh, Simone was uh, actually one of the people that had connections to the Hyperion Language School in Paris. And um, there's a whole entire conspiracy about the Hyperion Language School from which they say uh, they claim this was a creation of uh, maybe the CIA, um, and and this guy was like responsible, and they they hated this guy, uh, Simone, uh, because he was uh, kind of a sh what we call a champagne socialist and uh, caviar socialist, meaning that he uh, he he kind of didn't believe in uh, their cause. He more or less kind of drove expensive cars, was flashy. Uh, was not a very humble person and uh, didn't adhere to a lot of uh, their their principles. So the the main guy uh, of the Red Brigade, um, both of them believe this guy could have potentially been a snitch. Um, and I, I think that's uh, where we can kind of close the saga of the Red Brigade, unless you guys want to go into Aldo Moro uh, kidnapping, which I think is important i think it's interesting so aldo mora yeah it's worth talking about um i, I just add you know it's uh, the thing about it is a, a very well-known occupational hazard of being an armed gorilla insurgent <laughs> so it's just you know yeah mind. absolutely aldo mora was so the aldo uh, mora assassination yeah aldo mora was uh sort of this uh, Christian uh, socialist uh, political figure, and he was detested, not very well liked um, by any side, from what I gather. Uh, he, he was reviled. And it appears that uh, he was uh, now... The arrested Red Brigade claims that he was... The, the kind of precision it took to kidnap... Um, Aldo Moro was sort of like a state. Uh, it was it took a state actor, uh, but on the other hand, it it kind of is consistent uh, with a lot of their other uh, planning, because this is not like the first kidnapping they did. All around like the early seventies, they kidnapped a lot of uh, just mid-level people uh, who they kind of. Even one particular person they kidnapped, uh, and they they actually took a picture uh, with a gun pointed to his his head with a placard saying uh, "fascist." Um, so this was pretty consistent. But anyway, 
Five of Aldo Moro's bodyguards are, are killed. Uh, they're ambushed as he's going to the airport. Uh, they, they kidnap him and they hold him for like 55 days and until he turns out dead. And many people believe um, that it was the person who took over the Red Brigade that uh, was the trigger man. At least that's the person that's presently in jail for the action of kidnapping Aldo Moro. And this is a, a very pivotal point for Italy. This is sort of like the equivalent of like the JFK in America. They uh, they still don't agree on this, and, and this causes quite a stir and controversy. Um, so that um, that pretty much wraps up the... Uh, the saga of, I'd say the Red Brigade. There is like some other events where they kidnap uh, Dozier, um, and that's pretty much the closure point for the years of lead itself. Uh, some NATO, uh, I think, uh, U.S. official, U.S. Um, military official. Uh, that's the closure of that. And uh, of course, what's interesting is like afterwards, it continued on into the 90s. Uh, the Red Brigade. And uh, many of the people sought refuge in France, in Brazil, and many parts of South America. And they actually, uh, the French, I believe one of the French presidents, uh, prime ministers, actually stated that uh, all of the people that uh, engaged and, you know, leftists who engaged in political violence, you get refuge uh, and you will not be extricated, you will not be, you will not be extricated to, uh, to, you know, Italy. You know, we will provide you with refuge. And uh, that's that's the closure of the saga of like the uh, Red Brigade. And many people want to uh, bring many of these Red Brigade uh, sort of rogues to uh, quote unquote justice. And that's the it. That's it with the Red hmm. Brigade. Well, let's let's hit the uh, let's hit state. Um, so. What was the again, there's a lot of speculation as far as, uh, you know, the, Ital the formal Italian states collaboration with uh, American intelligence organizations. Yeah. But what is just on the surface level? What was the uh, nominal position of the Italian state throughout the It's It's hard to How say, they, for example. Um, how did they respond to specific acts of violence? What did they take? What uh, how did it affect their the political climate, policy, etc.? Well, the the Christian uh, the Christian Democrats typically sort of uh, brushed everything underneath the rug. They didn't really pay much attention to the violence. They sort of were, uh, you know, uh, laissez-faire when it came to the violence uh, on on really on either faction. Uh, most of uh, from what I've read, most most about the years of lead, it appears. Yeah, were, the, were they the majority party? Yes, they were the majority party. They were they were the ones in control. Oh, I just well, the Christian the majority. The Christi party, yes, the Christian uh, the Christian uh, socialist. The Christian socialists were the primary uh, party in Italy. Which essentially, in context, is really a rough equivalent to the domestic American libtard. Yes. Um, yes, pretty much. Neoliberals. They would be equivalent to neoliberals. 
in, in America. They pretty much believed in the same thing that the neoliberals believe in. They believed in a technocratic state um, and total uh, cooperation inclusion with America. They, they wanted to be part of the American economic bloc. They, they had no problem with um, being part of yeah. like uh, and, any, and, any part of NATO or America. And this is one, one expression of a possible strategy of tension, namely that when you have militant partisans on the left and the right who are fighting with each other, they're fighting, of course, the actual enemy, which is America. Yeah. Both sides hated America. Both sides hated capitalism. And and both sides saw it. One of them saw it as like a deterrent to a sort of workers' paradise, and the other one saw it as a deterrent and a decay of society, and and a, a kind of stifling of uh, the heroic spirit that was embodied in like uh, fascism. Was there a military response on the streets of, of North? Um, really, honestly, um, I don't really think there was much. I really get the impression from reading most of the material that there wasn't much uh, military presence on the st on the streets of Italy. Uh, from what I understand, it's it seems like more of like these terrorist attacks were sporadic, um, and they were so like um, disjointed and and not like sort of uh, you couldn't really pinpoint a lot of where these attacks were coming from. Uh, this is probably because they didn't have a high surveillance, and Italy itself. Um, you know, had a reputation to where uh, it was corrupt. A lot of the uh, cabaneri were uh, were corrupt, and and a lot of them could be bribed. And the jails itself, they were they were easily uh, you could easily escape out of the jails. And uh, the only response that I see from combating like the, the kind of uh, terrorism came from this guy Chichezia. Uh, who who like did clamp down on uh, uh, mainly the leftist uh, violence, and uh, from there it seemed it seemed like he tightened up security in prison, as opposed to the uh, as opposed to like the lax sort of environment, and and like I said, what I think happened is is the left and the right both learned how to navigate uh, the political atmosphere. Um, um, through the criminal sort of like the underworld networks, I think in itself, I think they utilized it a, a lot more than uh, than the state itself. Although there was allegedly there were people sympathetic uh, to the fascist cause still in the military, and still many of the uh, many of the military still probably had sentiments uh, and 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 uh, close ties to Mussolini's prior regime. Well. I this might be getting a little off track, but uh, this brings up something I was interested in, which is uh, what did the the wealthy, you know, the elite of Italy, the social elite, uh, perhaps uh, the cultural elite, the celebrities and so forth, but even just the the, the general industrial wealth, what did they think of all that, this that's drama? A, that's actually a good question. And what's interesting about that is that the um, I think they had actually um, – People like uh, the uh, Richie Cunningham of of Italy, the sort of a child actor of Italy, joined one of the radical fascist groups, 
and actually put his lot in with the with the fascist, uh, the NAR. Uh, they're the ones that people believe are responsible for the Bologna um, uh, train bombings. And there is another uh, kind of equivalent millionaire, kind of eccentric millionaire um, called Guilherme. I'm trying to look, find his name. His name was his first name was Guilherme. Guillermo. That was his first I name. Think it's he was Guillermo. No, Guillermo. That's Spanish. Yes, Guillermo was. Yeah. Uh, Guillermo, I think, was his like this guy's name, and he was uh, sort of an eccentric. Oh, there we go. Giant Gianticomo uh, felt. Feltinelli. He was a person who was sympathetic to uh, the leftists. And this guy was like a millionaire. And he actually formed the second uh, leftist terrorist group. So he actually put his lot in uh, with the leftists. And so much so, like he was really inspired by Che Guevara and also with the Cubans. A so much so. <laughs> so much so he actually uh planted a bomb on his property and blew himself up <laughs> well this is i mean this is this is a very interesting parallel i think yeah. to um the 1970s the 1960s and 70s in general around the world you had a great deal of uh of revolutionary conduct let's call it uh yeah everywhere from the united states to uh to britain to france in particular uh, Italy as well, uh, and although Italy took on, I think, a much more violent, uh, you know, sort of intra-war standpoint during this um, entire sort of uh, malaise, one thing you do see across the board uh, is not as much Soviet involvement yep. as you would think. Uh, I think that um, there was a there was a belief amongst many during this time frame. Richard Nixon was uh, famously one of the ones who, uh, very prominent figure who truly believed and, uh, you know, felt intuitively that much of the, you know, sort of cultural uh, war that was going on in the United States during his time and before it had to have at least been the work of the Soviet Union, and it, it might have been, uh, but I think that the truth was far worse, and he didn't yeah. want to, and many did not want to accept it, and that many moderately wealthy people. And in some cases, extremely wealthy people uh, were on both sides of this across the board in every country. You would yeah. find sort of uh, well, let's call them the gentry, uh, sort of modern day gentry almost of both. Uh, you know, who would support both sides. Uh, famously, many of the uh, many of the rock stars and uh, and prominent artists of the uh, the sixties and seventies who kind of spurned on the cultural left and the hippie movement and all and so forth. Famously, many of them were the children of Navy admirals or rich people. And, yeah. and, and you know, so you see this trend in Italy as well, where you have, uh, and this is the reason I asked is. It was reversed in Italy. Yeah, it was rever a little reversed in Italy. It seems yeah. as though the wealthy were mostly, you know, cognizant of their wealth and they were, uh, they, they did not want to inflame the situation by potentially indulging their sort of, uh, their their uh, I don't know their empathetic uh, interest in maybe the left wing cause they seemed like survival was a bit more prominent whereas in a, yeah. in a much more decadent place like France or or the UK or, or America Canada um, the the elite were 
felt, I think, much more comfortable to indulge themselves in sort of funding this stuff and spurning it on, keeping yeah. it from getting too violent and not letting it get out of control. And, and it's interesting to think about if there had been a days of lead in Canada or in France or in the UK, would a lot of the rich left support dried up immediately? Yeah. And it would have gone into more of a survival mode, which is I think it seems it like, yeah, I think, I think that the, the, the right in Italy, it, this is, this is a, this is a, uh, let's say a, a complex for many on the left today is that, you know, they, they, they they'll point out, well, you know, the, the fascists, in, especially in the post-war, they were funded by uh, the CIA. They're funded yeah. by rich people. And, and in some cases that is true. They were involved, yeah. uh, and I, but I think that when we're talking about rich people, you have to be careful in that these are maybe people with a few million dollars. Yes. These are not wealthy, extremely wealthy investment yeah. bankers. These are not magnates. These are people who own a factory or two or own patents on some technology yeah. or they have in some investment interests or they own some land. Like Especially in a place like Italy, land owning is probably your real path to wealth. And it probably always has been. It's not a, never particularly industrialized. So those people culturally and I think personally are much more akin to people like those of the sort of the on the street fascists in the cities. And uh, I think that they were willing to throw some throw them some support to keep this. But they probably also saw as a potential kind of communist uprising similar to Eastern Europe, yes. which would take the land and, and all this sort of thing. Very, very accurate and very astute observation about well, uh, it's well, the Italian situation. Very well. It, it's well known, for example, in, in America that it would be Coke for to finance national socialism in Europe. So <laughs> you gotta, gotta keep you gotta keep things in perspective. But to to a few points uh, that were made there uh, as to the entertainment. As respect to the wealthy and to entertainment, uh, I'd like to just point out now, or bring up now rather, uh, something that I, I've been interested in lately, which is uh, there were a number of films made, pronunciation of which I'm going to butcher, but it's a genre film <laughs> uh, called Poliziotic, uh, which is there were these police films. Uh, or at least loosely speaking. In fact, uh, they're not. There, there are definite parallels to the sort of nihilistic uh, cinema in, in the 70s in America, maybe the Dirty Harry films or the, the Charles Bronson ones. Uh, but they're quite good. And they were often derided as being fascist films in of themselves. But uh, that's not true. But more to the point, it does watching them does give you uh, it gives you a good setting for the mood of the time and the prevailing theme in those films. You have everything from like sort of there's some politically motivated violence, uh, some just like kind of nihilistic violence, yeah. all flavors of violence. The entire you know Baskin Robbins section of violence, but the prevailing theme in those films is that the system itself is rotten and corrupt. Yeah. And so any response to this is dealt with by people who 
themselves are rotten to the core. And it's there's a general, at least the mood presented in the films, and I'm, I think this is accurate historically, is that there was a general mistrust of the system in Italy with respect to any kind of justice being delivered. There's a another film I'm quite fond of that I don't know if it fits in the, the category, but it was... Uh, the film's called Investigations of a Citizen. That's a good movie. And it's it's about the, uh, the nature of the, the corruption in society at the time. Yeah. But while I'm on film, I, I want to mention one more to Hans's point, which is one of my absolute favorite films. The, the film is The Leopard. And it's one of the greatest films of all time. It's a film by Visconti, who himself was a Marxist, but it stars Burt Lancaster in his in his best role of all time. And he plays a member of the old Italian nobility. And what's relevant here, by this point, I'm sure that these people are much closer to extinction in the, in the 60s and 70s. But it shows the relationship of that old landed nobility in Italy to the political turmoil that's taking place. In this case, it's taking place around the time of Garibaldi. Uh, but if, if you want to get a perspective on that old money uh, Italian noble mindset, I think it's it, it's based on a novel. It's a very famous novel. But uh, I, I highly recommend that film as a detour I wanted to do. And I'm sorry if I'm breaking up. This, a storm just rolled in, so I, my connection is probably going to deteriorate. But that, those were my two cents. Okay, do you guys want to cover uh, the right now? The uh, sort of right uh, that we're involved in this? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So pretty much the, the right starts with the, the, um, the Italian social movement. They are sort of the mainstream far-right political party, and they are integrated in with the political system in, along with the uh, Christian socialist. And uh, they, of course uh, – from here, what's interesting is Freda and both uh, Chiali both um, are a part of this initially. Initially, they throw their lot in with uh, the Italian social movement. And and uh, they're they're part of the parliamentary system and um, you know respected and considered to be you know sort of uh, uh, the premier so-called far-right uh, system. And there was a lot of support for them initially. In 1960, there was a lot of support. And from 1960, it actually caused a riot in Italy. It caused a riot because of the backing of many of the um, many of the far-right. Um, in the parliamentary system, they they got fairly elected, but the, they sort of there was pressure exerted upon them by the by the leftists, um, you know, from them gaining any kind of power. So a lot of resistance was put up, and pretty much the Italian social movement, you could say, uh, complied complied with uh, most of the system, and that this kind of caused a um, a disenchantment, you could say. Uh, because there was a lot of people uh, within this system itself that said, oh, we could never achieve uh, a type of true fascist state, uh, sort of what the left was saying about uh, you know, communism. They were saying that they could never achieve a, a true sort of fascist state to go back to the days of Mussolini. Um, and and uh, this, this caused quite a division. This is where uh, sort of 
the foundations of the New Order. Uh, the New Order was established, I believe, somewhere around 1956. Uh, they split off officially. And they, they actually formed uh, from a sort of meeting at, the, at a university uh, from which uh, Chiale and, and also Freda uh, were said to have participated in this particular uh, meeting. Do, do you know established, the, what yes. the argument for why, why this wasn't possible? Do you know the argument? Because No, I, mean, I don't know. Unfortunately, like, unfortunately I mean, they don't. Uh, unfortunately, like I said, because this is only of, a few years ago. It's like yeah. uh, Ronald Reagan in the context yeah. of America. It's like, you know, the, the conservatives say we can go back to Ronald Reagan. So why can't yeah, we go I back think, to I think, uh, um, Mussolini? Yeah, yeah. I think that's what they were saying. And uh, there is indication that perhaps they thought that if they worked, I don't know, this is just speculation, by the way. Like I said, there's a lot of untranslated material in, in Italian that probably would give better insight uh, into this question as opposed to what we get um, in, in America. And I think they thought because they, they backed uh, Junio uh, Bor Borghese, Borghese, I think is they, they thought because they backed him and he's known as the Black Prince, uh, they thought because they backed him and, and like uh, to upset a lot of the elections in like the 1940s, they thought perhaps uh, they could somehow take control of the system probably through uh, through the parliamentary system. They thought they had enough support uh, within the military itself uh, to take back Italy into, into a fascist state. Uh, so what I, what I see is there seems to be a lot of internal division uh, in Italy itself, when mainly the military and, and mainly the installed um, uh, Christian socialists, there seems to be a lot of antagonism between the two uh, sort of acting uh, political forces, uh, from what I from what I gather, so I don't I can't say precisely what their conversation was, but I do know that uh, Freda and both Chiale, uh, and even like the founder of the New Order were dissatisfied with what they uh, they with, with the MS the MSI the Italian Socialist Movement, they were dissatisfied with them and they felt like uh, they kind of compromised on their views. Uh, in order to be part of the, the system itself, in order to be afforded a kind of seat at the table. So they thought there was like more, probably more extreme measures that should be taken uh, to secure that power. I know Freyda at least believed that. Uh, Freyda kind of viewed uh, Italy and Europe itself as a dying uh, sort of a whore, you could say, to, to put it crudely. He called it a hussy, kind of a... Yeah, I read... <laughs> That that quote from uh, his from disintegration of the system that was great. Yeah. It was uh, I, I I won't butcher it because I don't have it in front of me, but I know I know what you're referring to. Yeah, he he kind of received like it was just shifting from uh, various different monarchy to illuminism to uh, to 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 fascism. Uh, which let me just say the, that the uh, analogy that I would give at least for, well in 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 disintegration of the system the way that he talks about Europe and why like it should be thrown in the dustbin, the whole concept of Europe. Uh, it's the exact same thing that I would say to a contemporary uh, who talks America. about the West. Yeah. The, the West. Same, yeah. or the West as, as the term of choice. It's the same 
vapid, meaningless bullshit. That yeah. It's just like it, it's a placeholder that's meant to appeal to people who have the scent, you know, from very yeah. with various sentiments. It's a catch all that's supposed to evoke some kind of nostalgia. But yeah. it's ultimately meaningless and hollow. And I, I think that is primarily what uh, what and by the way, Freda formed his own organization um, and uh, actively around in the 60s, even before the hot autumn, he participated in in with the uh, Maoist on, in the street. Uh, as a matter of fact, the disintegration of the system itself is actually a speech he gave somewhere around 1969 when the uh, Piazza Fontana bombing in question happened. Um, and, and like I say, I keep mentioning Stefano uh, De La Cialli. Uh, he's uh, kind of the hidden factor in all of this. Uh, he started his own organization, uh, which was uh, completely uh, militant. The, the, the National Vanguard was, was, the, was the brainchild of his. And uh, like I said, he participated actively in the, the strategy of tension. Uh, but his exact collusion uh, with the state and also his involvement with uh, sort of terrorist activity has never been um, satisfactory. It never has been uh, sort of answered uh, to, to any, any sort of extent of his involvement. It, it appears that he was involved. And um, speaking of Stefano Della Cialli, he had sort of an international component. Uh, he forged an alliance, it appears, with the Franco state, the Franco government. And uh, many people believe he was actively participating in it with uh, Otto Scorzani. Um, and and there, there was this thing called the Black Orchestra and the Fascist International, uh, where um, there was and many Der active... Spider. <laughs> or... What's that? Odessa. You'll see this referred to. Not well, Odessa, but been, yeah. Not Odessa. No, this is not Odessa. This is Scorzani. It was kind of like after World War II, he was sort of an independent actor. He was a mercenary kind of for hire. He went to Egypt. Uh, he went to Franco as Spain. Uh, he pretty much transversed the entire globe. Didn't he go to Argentina? Service. Yeah, Argentina as well. And uh, Chiali actually did as well. And they they accuse uh, Stefano Di Chiali of participating in like a coups in Bolivia. Now, how much of that is like verifiable? I don't know. They, they claim he also was involved with, you know, Klaus uh, Barbie as well, um, which he's another favorite of uh, many of the, you know, uh, you could say like leftist academics like to also invoke him whenever there's like any type of uh, uh, international kind of uh, fascist uh, kind of network. So it's really hard to say, but I mean, he did, uh, he did actually have escape routes to South America through Spain. And he did have uh, also people that um, also uh, was able to, uh, that Freda was able to use as well. Freda actually escaped, evaded uh, for a while. And uh, this seems to be a common theme amongst many of the uh, many of the neo-fascists. So whether that was a U.S. network or MI six uh, or whatever, I don't know. I can't I can't say for sure because, like I said, 
Uh, there's a lot of things that are inclusive about uh, collusion uh, with the right. And um, there's, of course, you know, that that's pretty much summarizes uh, most of the involvement in the right in uh, the years led. To my knowledge, I have a question about the new. Uh, I just curious if you knew anything about the symbolism of the flag with the uh, double bit axe. Oh, the the double axe. That's, that's old, Holy um, shit! Yeah, sorry. Yeah, that's. <laughs> Please go ahead. Okay, the backdrop of it is pretty much National Socialist, and the the axe itself goes back to uh, the days I think of uh, of Italy, like the very very uh, ancient times of Italy. I believe it symbolizes going all the way back to maybe the formation of Rome itself and uh, maybe even to the Indo-Europeans because Freda himself was uh, highly inspired by uh, sort of a uh, primeval sort of Indo-Europeanism uh, and a sort of primitive uh, Spartanism that uh, he wanted to integrate alongside with Maoism and, and fascism. That those were like two components, so that's probably uh, where the flag comes from. Well, it's interesting this discussion of all different kinds of uh, either you know, tools, be it uh, industrial or agrarian, and yeah. the relationship to fringe ideologies. Yeah, uh, you know the double bit axe. You don't see that that much these days. Uh, typically. What you do with a double bit axe is you have one one of the axe one of the blades is very sharp, and for the execution, other is a bit duller, and you use one for for just for well, I mean that's probably yeah you'd probably use the sharp one for beheading because yeah. well the dull the duller side is used for when you're hitting something close to the ground or trying to get yeah, a knot chopping wood, wood. yeah um, maybe it's a bit of a digression no I I think that's but, uh, that sounds easy. Uh, I just thought it was interesting because it's a really unique, it's a unique symbol. And typically when, <laughs> it sounds like I'm joking, but I'm not really joking. Like it's, it's the use of farm implement. I mean, I mean, for fuck's sake, like the, <laughs> the hammer and the sickle is something yeah. that was, you know, huge in, in the 20th in the case century. Of, uh, I mean, in the case of like, it's in, interesting. In a, and in the case of like the left is also the wrench. Also is like another, another symbol. They also had, the left is yeah, also the had, P, they also had a P38. Which uh, which symbolized um, you may have seen that uh, very famous picture with uh, someone pointing a gun kind of towards the crowd. That was actually a type of leftist uh, a leftist uh, type of uh, insurrection during 19 I believe 1974 that was started by the, the Loda Continua. That was uh, sort of their sort their 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 implement they used for their symbolism. Yeah, interesting. It's a you know German uh, late war issue uh, sidearm. Yeah, interesting. The uh, national Bolsheviks had the, the hammer. Yeah, um, I don't know. There's something to this. I just I think I think it's there could I, be. Didn't, I didn't have an explanation as to what <laughs> that was fine. as That's far fine. as the the symbolism. That's fine. You had also the uh, I think it's the Od one of the other organizations had the Odal Rune. Was that right? Yeah, the Odal Rune was. Uh... I believe it was Freda's organization, or it may have been uh, Chiale's organization. It may have been the National Vanguard. Yeah, I think it was Stefano Di Chiale. So, uh, what was? And what what was the 
did you have anything else further you wanted to say about the specific activities of the uh, the militant right? Well, I will say that Chiale's uh, activities from '77 up until the uh, Bologna bombings in uh, in Italy are, are rather mysterious. Like no one really knows uh, what his uh, course of action was during that time. Nobody knows exactly his uh, has been able to like. Uh, verify what what exactly he was up to uh that's uh that's as far as chiali goes and in addition to that another interesting factor about uh, chiali is that he tried to forge alliances with Gaddafi. um and there was actually people in the national vanguard and uh the neo-fascists that tried to uh make a type of friendship with Gaddafi, and this still actually carries on today because one of uh, Freda's friends, close friends, uh, named Claudio Muti, actually is uh, the ambassador. You, you could say he's kind of the unofficial fourth, fourth uh, positionist ambassador to Libya. He sort of like... Uh, it still emphasizes Libya. There's been a longstanding uh, relationship between Italy and Libya. Uh, the Italian yep. energy company, Eni, uh, I believe, does oil deals down there. And uh, again, Fiat was uh, touring the uh, Mediterranean uh, part of Africa quite a bit. Uh, so yeah. I don't know if that's uh, because of just simple proximity or because of the uh, I, I, th I believe there is historical empires, there. No. but yeah, it's been, it's been long, long ongoing and the French as well, but, um, Italy in particular with, with Libya, I think. You, you mentioned the French. That's uh, pretty interesting. There was a organization, I believe a pro pro colonialist, uh, fascist organization that was based out of Algeria. That was also part of this, uh, black orchestra. That's uh, that's that's mentioned. Uh, that also Stefano della Chiale uh, actually had a close sort of partnership with. And um, uh, I don't want to ver I don't want to really verify it, but there's a uh, I believe a organization called the Agentor Agentor Press that was in Portugal at the time that some people think may have been a complete fabrication of like the CIA. But they had a, a close association with the OAS, uh, colonialist force in Algeria, and also with Chile, allegedly. I mean, like I said, most of the stuff that's that's written about Chile and the right is highly speculative. Like the only thing we really have um, about the right in um, in in Italy itself is like Freda's writings and uh, some book written by an anarchist named Stuart Christie. Like I can't think of anything else in English. Maybe that's a maybe that's a goal for a lot of people to translate some of the text, uh, the right the right wing text, and in, uh, into English, so we can study this and understand this uh, event for from the right a lot more coherently than uh, what's presently presented. A lot of people on, on that note. Uh... I would like to give you an opportunity to give any concluding remarks that you'd like to make on the actual historical events. Uh, and then we can pivot to a brief discussion on what parallels might be significant to okay. the current state of affairs. I, um, 
the only concluding remarks I will say historically is that uh, there is another component to this, and that's uh, the clandestine component to uh, the years led. That many people believe that the P2 Lodge, uh, which has historically been actually been a part of Italy uh, since its inception by um, by Mazzini, and there was a specific sort of um, caveat within the lodge itself. Uh, which people know as the covered lodge, and the covered lodge was enable was able for a lot of people to conceal uh, a lodge within a lodge, and that's what many people believe uh, may have been the common link between uh, the right and with uh, and with many of the uh, fascist in the, in the state and the military, uh, and also the collusion as well as with the criminal underworld. That's highly speculative, and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, dissenting opinions about, uh, you know, what uh, what factor the P2 Lodge played in uh, the entire uh, years of lead. But for what it does seem, it does seem there was some uh, collusion because uh, Lucio uh, Gailey, uh was was found to have been uh, culpable to uh, some of the charges he was brought up upon by the magistrates and some of the the names. Were, that were disclosed uh, were connected to a lot of prominent people throughout Italy, including uh, Beres, Be Belisconi, the uh, the three times sort of prime minister of Italy, and and uh, sort of uh, media magnate. There was like mul multiple different uh, people that were verified to be part of the P2 Lodge. So I don't know. It's something uh, interesting to look into, um, and it, it's something that I think needs uh, further evaluation for uh, before I make anything conclusive but yeah it was it was decided at least on that factor and and I say uh, I don't support Freemasonry I don't think Freemasonry is a uh, a valid system you know for uh, for Europeans but I say if it if like uh, they were they had the ability to utilize uh, whatever tools they had at their dispersal to um, to you know to forge uh, a sort of new uh, government out of like out of like you know the U.S. occupation, I would have supported it, and uh, that's just my own uh, my own opinion observation. Yeah, it's a masonry with respect to geopolitics and espionage is a huge rabbit hole, and it's made even more complicated in a country like Italy, which is an ostensibly Catholic country. I mean, where they yeah. Have <laughs> which, which, by the way, the a lot of Catholics were involved there. with P2 as well. It wasn't exclusively. Um, yeah, that's what makes of, it very interesting. Which I think had yeah. a lot to do with Mazzini. Mazzini had a lot to do with uh, why um, a lot of Italians were able to reconcile uh, the contradictions of the uh, of like the, uh, the theological contradictions uh, with the with the nationalists. Sentiment. I think they were able to reconcile that because of Mazzini. Mazzini put the caveat of like the covered lodge, uh, which was kind of intrinsic to the foundations of, of Italy itself. Um, well, what, what parallels do you see with these events to contemporary politics? What do you think that uh, lessons to be learned? Is there, well, you, you just, the question's obvious, so you, you have asked. Well, it. I mean, I think you can kind of see the dissent. Uh, this is rather uh, hits kind of home to a lot of people, and they probably won't acknowledge this. 
but you can kind of see the dissent sort of fomenting in uh, America itself amongst uh, the right as uh, more people um, are moving more, I guess, into the mainstream, trying to attract more of a normie base, you know, more of a more of a normative base. And they sort of like are are conceding with a lot of the, the state itself trying to attract uh, the greater, uh, you should say, white America. Uh, they are compromising a lot of their initial principles. And there is sort of also an extremist faction that's forming from a lot of uh, nihilistic and disenchanted youth uh, that are just coming into uh, sort of the right. And uh, I think in the future, you'll probably see more uh, more partisan uh, type fracturing amongst, uh, amongst the right. Uh, in addition to that, it also seems like within the right, there is a type of inorganic, um, inorganic, you kind of can say movements that are being sort of artificially constructed and and to to uh, to curtail a lot of the extremism uh, that would naturally arise uh, from the volatile conditions of America itself. And that's that's what I think is what could, the lesson that could be learned from the years of lead. Uh, in addition to that, also, keeping infiltrators out of your inner core uh, might also be a good lesson learned from both the left and the right if you uh, apply if you apply that in any kind of a, a practical lesson from the years of lead. What do you guys think? Um, I'm not an advocate for violence in most cases. Um, I think obviously self-defense is widely recognized as justified. Um, I think in times like this though, you have to, um, you have to be even more careful. Um, I will take that position that I think the, powers that be are looking for scapegoats uh, to pin the media attack dogs on to do effectively what the policy of tension was in Italy and America. Um, we've heard the uh, Attorney General cite uh, Europeans uh, in America who believe the government has overreached as the number one enemy uh, for the uh, federal government. Uh, and I think Using examples like January 6th, which was completely overblown with a bunch of guys taking selfies and uh, putting their feet on Nancy Pelosi's desks, uh, exaggerated and blown out into uh, literally worse than 9-11, uh, ought to tell you what the system is willing and able to do, given the uh, reactions I've heard just from people I know uh, and how much they believe that garbage. Uh, so I think you have to be extremely careful uh, as to uh, how you conduct yourselves in an active fashion, uh, in a passive fashion, in a secretive fashion, I'm always you know supportive of, and I would continue to advocate for people to uh, work uh, for their own benefit uh, at hopefully the uh, disadvantage of the system uh, as a whole, at least as the system continues to be uh, anti-white and anti-traditional uh, uh, heritage American. Um, I think that's all I have to say. So something that really struck me listening to uh, the discussion and reading about this topic ahead of time is that despite a lot of the bloodshed and a lot of the drama and the, the instability, uh, this is not even a very well-known uh, topic of Italian history. 
amongst the general public, even amongst, I think, the educated. And there's something to be said about that uh, in that I think in many ways, while it was brutal and probably played a very important role within Italy, it's almost been forgotten. And you could argue that it's been forgotten because people wanted to put it behind them or it was forgotten because of political manipulation to forget it. Uh, but I do think that there's an element here that relates to a lot of what's going on now. I think people have a tendency to really blow certain things out of proportion. Uh, and they have a tendency to uh, sort of put the carriage before the horse. And they will look at the most minor situations and scream doom and cry havoc. In looking at the years of lead, which is a grueling sort of almost 20 year long process in, in, in some ways uh, that resulted in, in nothing. It, re, you know, it, it effectively resulted in, in, in nothing. There was, there was no great uh, victory on either side. There was no great achievement. It was a, sort of a lot of unnecessary bloodshed. I think relating to what goes on now, if people talk a lot about how they're, you know, they, they want to do certain things, they're ready for certain things, the years of lead, it should be very instructive to you because you might think that a few one-off events or even a string of connected events that might be a little gruesome, might be very heavy, are the start of something and that, you know, this is going to be the, the first shot heard around the world for your whatever. In 20 years, it could be completely forgotten and everyone will be trying to put it behind them. And it'll be kind of remembered with a lot of, I think, solemnness and, and sadness at, at all of these issues. And something else I would bring up in that people who envision something like this happening wherever they are, be very, very wary of what's been outlined in this show and anything else you read about this conflict. There will be foreigners. There will be all kinds of interests involved. People who you would not suspect of having an interest in your affairs suddenly be very interested. And you should be kind of wary of what getting into a conflict really looks like in a world where someone who has an interest could be on the other side of the planet and still enact huge amounts of change in your conflict. So... Look at the, the years of lead as not an instruction manual, but potentially a vision of how things could go wrong, very wrong. And you, know, you could wind up in a situation where there's loss of life, there's loss of respect, your economy bottoms out, and you're left with nothing. And in fact, in some ways, foreign interests and, and uh, hostile interests within your country might wind up with more power in the long run. That, that's kind of how I would look at it. Very well put. Well, I, this, this storm has really picked up, so I, I, I probably shouldn't try to speak for too long. Um, I'll just say, I mean, like this is a this is a topic that comes up all the time, and 
I'm not going to give like the usual disclaimers or anything because it's like you've heard it you've heard it all before, man. It it the one main difference I would I would draw uh, between these types of radical politics taking place in Europe and the Cold War and America is that Americans are just they're not political thinkers. They will always they will always they're they're moral thinkers. They think morally. And it's not a they in any given situation in a certain sense, that makes them actually easier to bait out. And that's what you see taking place now is that they're trying to bait people out uh, by just making it more and more egregious. And I think that, you know, in politics, you just got to think clearly and coherently about the ends that you want. And uh, the reality is that doesn't mean always doing the right thing. Uh, sometimes it means doing the wrong thing. Uh, the thing that you would prefer not to do. It means alliances you prefer not to have, maybe compromises you'd prefer not to make. Uh, you know, it's I'm I'm not here to give anyone advice or tell anyone what to do. The reality is in America, there is no there is no political solution. Yeah. Something something else that uh, I think is very interesting is is uh, early on. Both uh, our guest Patrick and Nick talked about the clannishness of Italians, and this maybe benefited the Italians to an extent. It might have kept the bloodshed lower, and it might have assisted in certain operations. And overall, it might have just been beneficial from many perspectives on both sides of the conflict. This is not an advantage that many people have around the world. And it's not just America. This is a problem in many places. Huge countries, much bigger countries than Italy, much more powerful countries than Italy have this issue. There's a distinct lack of clannishness where your clan is very small and it's not well connected to others. So again, this can all get very out of control I think that in a place like Italy, where you know a civil war, let's put it, was not taken even that seriously. There were lots of bad assassinations and violence in the street and blood, but it did not devolve into uh, the American Civil War or something like that. We have hundreds of thousands dead, and, and you know mass uh, cities and, and, and entire industrial districts burned to the ground, and you know just horrific casualties. Uh, the clannishness of Italy probably prevented a lot of that, and it kept at least the average person in their life from too much harm. When you are in one of these other countries, and there are many, America, Canada, Brazil, just to name a few, this is not going to be an advantage you have in most areas. And so again, Something you can maybe take away from a lot of this in the modern world is build your clan or know who at least those people really are. Get to know the people who think you will be close with, both geographically and uh, culturally, emotionally, uh, because those will be the people, if anything like this ever comes to pass. Actually, I don't think that there's a good chance it will necessarily, but 
if if something like this does come to pass, you will want to at least emulate as much as you can of the average Italian during this period, who I think had a lot going for them that kept them out of the fray and kept them from, I think, uh, receiving and, and inflicting an over amount of damage on everyday normal people who are just trying to get by. Yeah, and Hans, Hans making a point, I, I think it's probably, like, I don't know this for sure, but I think it's pretty likely that, you know, in between assassinations and bombs, you know, you're still taking, like, a pretty, you know, solid two or three hour nap in the afternoon <laughs> after, you know, a, a pretty big lunch. So yeah. it's it's definitely just not America, man. I mean, people who draw parallels to this, I just don't like another thing. I mean, I think this should be obvious, but this is a dispute amongst white. Well, a dispute amongst Italians. Right. I mean, they don't have. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I couldn't help it. But but seriously, like they don't have the race problem that America has. This is a totally different circumstance. I mean, these are the types of political disputes that you, that take place in a homogenous country, especially Northern Italy. I'm sure, I mean, Italy obviously has uh, race problems, but that's mostly the South. And Northern Italy, I mean, it's very European. So these are, these are like pure political disputes about the organization of the state, the role of the working class, the relationship to foreign powers, and so on and so forth. Uh, America is very different. And I open by talking about the uh, kind of amusing Wikipedia entry on the years of lead. And you can only imagine, like, if there was, a, if, if the, the, the vaunted, like, Civil War II took place in America, and, like, we're not all dead. Uh, years later, with, that, with the Wikipedia entry, I mean, obviously Wikipedia wouldn't exist, but it's it's analog. Uh, you know what it would look like? It would be like, it would be like the state, like FBI, A, like U.S. military, and then like Antifa, like FBI, CIA, U.S. military, and then like the Proud Boys, FBI, CIA, U.S. military. <laughs> we can call it the use of Fed. <laughs> I think that's an apt description. Yeah, and something something else that uh, I found very interesting was the description of street fighting and, and most of the real violence was towards high-profile individuals. I mean, yeah, there were bombings that were innocent people. I think there were a lot of probably innocent people who had their kneecaps busted with a with a wrench or, yeah. or something like that, but. Not in the kneecap as well. Yeah. But the, a lot of the hardcore violence was a targeted high-level individuals. And you even had, um, at one point, uh, uh, there was a general who was assassinated in the late 80s. Yeah. So, like, this would be different in other countries. I think Italy, uh, something to keep in mind, Italy not being a very industrial country, does not have ready access to heavy equipment, does not have access to a lot of industrial byproducts, um, does not have access to a lot of nameless products that are used in 
the early stages of any, of any industrial process. Uh, don't even have very big cars or trucks, uh, and they certainly don't have a large amount of uh, of, of uh, weapons. This is a very different dynamic in North America, in other parts of Europe, in Asia, in South America. Uh, most of the world where you would have, I think, something far worse than what happened with Italy uh, has a lot more of these pieces of heavy equipment, weapons, all kinds of other items that will be used in this sort of uh, mayhem. And if you think that the years of lead could happen in a place like this, in, you know, let's say America, I think you'd be very mistaken. Uh, you would not have sort of these innocent street fights and then, you know, high uh, attacks and, and so forth. Uh, look no further than the absolutely bizarre phenomena of school shootings in America. If you want to know where... How, how psychotic and dangerous this country can get in a single snap. So do not, I would say, don't look at the years of lead, which is which was truly a, an intra-Italian ideological conflict uh, for any sort of uh, view of what could happen to other countries. I think this, this, this is much more applicable to certain countries in Europe or certain smaller countries in Asia, but large, very, very uh, eclectic countries like the United States or even Britain, you know, it, it would not necessarily play out this way. I think it would get far worse and there would not be more of a focus on high profile and, you know, more just uh, caustic injuries on the low profile. One interesting thing I would like to point out before we before we head off here is, you know, it's a classic revolutionary strategy to deny the middle ground. You create a, a situation where, you know, it's either us or the enemy type type environment, right? And form a strategy of tension. And contemporary uh, occupied North America, it's the system itself that's doing. They are engaged in what is a essentially a classic revolutionary strategy especially now with uh, plague politics they are really making it a choice just absolute compliance with the system or extermination i mean it sounds hyperbolic but it's really not i mean people are going to really be in desperate situations in the years coming forward and i think organic forms of violence will originate will be from really desperate people who've been put out of a job uh you know had their families essentially taken uh you know forced into situations of divorce and not having access to their children and um, i i can see that going forward that those are the people who are probably most likely to snap understand it i mean just like from a human perspective you can understand it and I don't know if uh, this is something like Zion has really thought through all the way. You know, I know they have a tendency to, they want to war game things out and plan, but I think a more interesting debate is how much is this off the rails and how 
going exactly according to plan. I, I have my opinions on that. Uh, I think others here do too, but that's kind of the main. Um, it, it's tough to say if it's according to plan, but I would say that uh, the system would love, just love for somebody to snap and point all the cameras at them. Uh, I'll just reiterate what I said before. And before we conclude, I wanted to give Patrick a chance to mention to the audience uh, his show or uh, other activities he's up to. Yes, thank you. Um, and by the way, guys, it's been an honor to uh, talk to you guys about the years led. Um, my show is Surviving Via America, where I uh, interview dissidents and uh, talk about uh, pretty much survival uh, various different, uh, you know, historical, political topics as well. And uh, I want to, I want to thank you guys for uh, bringing me on. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Absolutely, been a pleasure. Oh!
lo 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 lo